Elvis. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about baseball player Ty Cobb are insane. He was inducted into the very first class of the Baseball Hall of Fame, with more votes received than any other player. He was a beast on the diamond. He was also a giant prick on the diamond. Off the diamond, too. Ty Cobb had a notoriously short fuse. He got into fights with teammates, fans, even normal people working their jobs. He attacked hecklers with his fists, cut up hotel employees with a knife, and, it was rumored, bragged about beating a man to death. There are so many insane stories about Ty Cobb that sometimes it's hard to tell what's true and what's not. What we do know is that Ty Cobb was at the center of some of the greatest sports moments of all time. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great sports moment. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called the Freckled Heckler MK2. I played you that clip because there is no known existing audio of what would come to be called the greatest ball game ever contested. When the Philadelphia Athletics beat the Boston Americans in a 24-inning game that lasted nearly five hours. And why would I play you that specific slice of imagined extra innings cheese could I afford it? Because that was one of the biggest moments in sports on September 1st, 1906. And that was the day that Ty Cobb missed his 37th straight game with the Detroit Tigers after disappearing from the team that summer without any notice. A puzzling absence that only added to the growing mythology around one of the most mythic players of all time. On this episode, short fuses, hecklers, rumors, disappearances, extra innings cheese, and the Georgia peach, Ty Cobb. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season two, Sportsland. Yankee Stadium, May 1912. The heckler's voice cut through the din of the baseball crowd. Hey Cobb, you're a bum. Ty Cobb stood in the outfield and tried to keep his attention on the game. He pressed a fist into the well-worn leather of his glove, and the heckler kept it up. Hey Cobb, I'm talking to you, you dub. Ty's thick skin prickled. He resisted the urge to turn around and look into the outfield bleachers, thus giving the heckler the attention he so desperately desired. Plus, Ty Cobb was used to hearing taunts like this. He got them wherever he went, and it wasn't just because he was a Detroit Tiger in the land of the fabled pinstripes. Ty Cobb was heckled for the reputation he brought to the diamond. Ty Cobb always threatened violence on the ball field. If an infielder got in his way when he was trying to steal a base or stretch a single into a double, Ty would go in spikes first. He said the base pass belonged to him. If players on the other teams were afraid of him, well, all the better. Intimidation could work to his advantage and they'd get out of his way or suffer the consequences. Either way, it was fine with him. Detroit fans loved Ty Cobb for playing so hard and so smart and so mean. 
and the fans who circulated rumors about him only added to his mystique. Rumors like the one where he sharpened the spikes on his shoes specifically to inflict pain on opposing players. Or the one where he had killed a guy who looked at him the wrong way. Neither was true. What was true was that all over the United States, baseball fans were fascinated by Ty Cobb. They either loved his style of play or hated him, but either way, they wanted to see him in the flesh because anything was possible when Ty Cobb came to town. At a game in Philly where the fans of the Philadelphia Athletics threw lemons at him, he threw the lemons back, but he threw them harder and faster. Later in the game, he went into third base spikes first and hit the Athletics star player Frank home run Baker deliberately and hard. At the end of the game, angry Philly fans swarmed the field and tried to get their hands on Ty the whole Detroit team and all the cops on duty at the stadium that day had to come up to help him get away in one piece. Now at Yankee Stadium, Ty Cobb felt the siren call of violent conflict once again as the heckles from the bleachers kept coming. And this one particular guy yelling at him was extra. You're a bum, Cobb! Ty finally turned around to find the heckler in the stands, and when he found him, realized that he'd seen this guy before. Ty Cobb kept a mental inventory of everyone who ever slighted him and every mouth that trash-talked him. He grew up in the South, in the 19th century, Royston, Georgia, to be precise, and had to defend himself a lot. People always gave him a lot of shit when he played on the road, but the fans at Yankee Stadium were especially bad, and this heckler was all over his ass. Ty remembered the same guy from the previous year, 1911. He was hard to miss and easy to remember, this guy in the stands with his expensive derby hat and his fancy suit, and especially his coat. Who wore an alpaca coat to a fucking baseball game anyway? Always standing there with his hands in his pockets, he wasn't a garden variety heckler. Somehow, this guy knew exactly how to push Ty's buttons. The heckler was also persistent. He started his litany of abuse at batting practice on the first day of the Tigers' visit to Yankee Stadium. He kept riding Ty for nine innings, three days in a row. And by the fourth game, Ty decided he'd had enough. First, he went over to the Yankees' dugout and looked for one of the team owners. He hoped they'd have the guy kicked out, not just for his benefit, but for the benefit of everyone else in the stands. The press had already been talking about how rough the baseball crowds were getting. But there were no owners in the dugout that day. So Ty went over to handle it himself. He told the heckler to cut the shit. So the heckler let loose with another stream of insults, somehow worse than any of the previous days like he'd have been saving some choice material in case Ty came over to talk to him. It made Ty's blood boil. After the inning, Ty could still hear him out in left field even though Ty was back in the dugout. One of Ty's teammates spoke up. You're not gonna let that guy get away with that shit, are you? He's been on you for four days. Ty thought about this for a second. If he didn't stick up for himself, the guy would keep coming to Yankee Stadium all year, and maybe for the rest of Ty's career. Ty went out to the field, jumped the railing, and pushed past spectators in the crowd until he was face to face with Mr. Alpaca Coat. He could see fear in the guy's face. Good, Ty wanted him to be afraid. That'll teach him some manners. And he wanted everyone else to be afraid of him too. Not just other fans in the stands, but the entire Yankee lineup. He wanted them all to watch what happened next. It would help his game. Ty grabbed the guy and started hitting him in the head. The first punch wasn't satisfying enough, so he kept swinging over and over again. He thought of the bonehead's alpaca coat and kept slugging. And the crowd cheered him on. Well, some of them anyway. He can't defend himself, said a few of the fans. He's a cripple. 
The guy in the alpaca coat was named Charles Lucker. He had worked on the printing floor of the New York Times until a printing press accident claimed all the fingers on one hand and two more on the other. Mr. Lucker held his deformed stumps in front of his face as Ty kept hitting him over and over again. Stop, they said, he has no hands. And Ty started kicking Charles Lucker with those famous spikes and said, I don't care if he has no feet. Ty Cobb beat and kicked him bloody until someone finally pulled him off and the umpire threw him out of the game. It wasn't uncommon for players to go into the stands to attack hecklers back in 1912, especially when the rhetoric got ugly. But the American League president, Ban Johnson, just couldn't let this particular offense slide. Ty was a great player, and that was the problem. Ty knew he was a great player. He was cerebral and aggressive. He went against the grain. He played what we now categorize as small ball, innovating the game around the edges instead of with flashy home runs. He rubbed it in, he gloated, he irritated other players, even his own teammates occasionally. Here was a guy who came from privilege, who turned his back on an educated career track in order to toss a smart-ass monkey wrench into the established cogs of baseball. He was so cocky that he skipped spring training. He always wanted more money for filling the stadiums with fans, and he beat up on players and fans alike. The buck had to stop somewhere. Ty Cobb was setting a horrible example for children and for the fans. So Ban Johnson slapped an indefinite suspension on him. In response, the Tigers players staged the first organized strike in baseball history. They walked off the field and refused to come back until Ty Cobb was reinstated. Commissioner Johnson doubled down and threatened to impose a daily fine on the team, and none of the Tigers relented, until Ty Cobb told him himself he didn't want his teammates to suffer financially. Then they started playing again, and Ty Cobb was reinstated shortly thereafter. Despite the fact that he'd beaten a handicapped man in the stands, Ty Cobb was widely applauded for his behavior by Detroit fans and players alike. It's a different time, I guess. Kind of a fucked up time. But it wasn't always like this for him. He didn't always have the support of the fans or even his teammates. Just a few years before, things were so bad that Ty thought he would quit, despite having the tools to become one of the best baseball players of all time. His teammates did not make him feel welcome to say the least. And in the middle of all their abuse, the worst thing he could ever imagine happened. Ty Cobb's grandfather had been a captain in the Confederate Army. Think about that, the Civil War, or if you're from the South, the War of Northern Aggression, was only 20 years in the rear view when Ty Cobb was born in 1886. People assumed that Ty Cobb grew up poor simply because he was from the Reconstruction era South. Nothing could be further from the truth. He grew up in a 13-room house in Royston, Georgia. Ty's father, William Herschel Cobb, graduated from a co-ed Georgia college in 1892. First, he was an educational superintendent, and then he became a state senator and fought against school segregation. He kept the family house stocked with books. And by all accounts, he was a pretty progressive dude, especially for the times. It's easy to see William's influence on Ty later in life after he retired from baseball. 
Ty stood up for black players in the early 1950s and gave shout outs to guys like Willie Mays and Roy Campanella. It's also easy to see that his famous hair trigger might have something to do with the way he was raised. Ty's dad was a vocal, visible anti-racist during a time when many townspeople kept white clan robes in their closets. The South was still teeming with anger. Fights were part of the era's fabric, whether in the shape of brawls or formalized duels. Neighborhood kids were brutal and Ty got into fights, a lot of them. It didn't help that he was short and skinny. He was so little that when he first started playing baseball, he could barely lift the bat. He was the youngest player, but probably the smartest, which he always reminded everybody about. How he was able to steal second, third, and home, all in the same at bat. Ty hit a growth spurt and put on height and pounds, but he didn't lose any of his speed. He joined the Royston Reds, a local semi-pro ball club, when he was still a teenager, for home games anyway. At first, his dad wouldn't let young Ty travel, which really pissed Ty off. And that led to more anger, more fights, more bragging about himself. And Ty joined the minor league team, the Augusta Tourists, and then the semi-pro Aniston Steelers. And by the time he left Royston, the town coffin maker had made three custom ash bats to Ty's specifications, black and smooth. His dad hated the idea of Ty going pro. Baseball was a rough game, full of rougher individuals. Ty had grown, but he was still young. But Ty's dad couldn't convince him otherwise and the other players didn't respond well to a big-mouthed pipsqueak. When he got a hit, Ty jumped up and down on the base, yelling, waving his arms, trying to distract the pitcher. He didn't realize that he was also annoying his teammates, and they hated him and his big mouth and his custom bats. And in the middle of it all, he got the telegram that changed his life. August, 1905. Ty's father, William Cobb, left Royston on a Tuesday, he told his wife Amanda, Ty's mother, that he'd be back on Thursday. He had to go to some schools out of town on business. In actuality, William was setting a trap. He'd heard rumors about his wife. Amanda was a good-looking woman, and William knew this, and he saw it confirmed in the eyes of men around town as they checked her out. It went beyond eyes checking her out, though. He'd heard the whispers. Amanda was having an affair, but William had a plan. It was simple. He'd say he was getting back Thursday. Amanda would think she had plenty of time, but William would come home early and catch her in the act. He had a revolver in his pocket that Wednesday night and a rock. He didn't know who was screwing his wife, his Amanda, but it didn't matter. He had options. He could kill the son of a bitch up close or from a distance. It was a hot Georgia night when William crept up to the window, 11 o'clock in pitch black, but he was still sweating. He peered inside. It was dark, hard to see. Did he hear noises inside? Were they together? It was hard to tell, but he thought he did. He was pretty sure. He stood there for a moment, and the air was still. William cracked the window open, his hand in his pocket. The revolver or the rock, either one would do. He took out the revolver and peered inside. He thought he heard something. Yeah, he definitely heard something. A thumping getting louder and louder. This was it, William thought. This was it. One gunshot, then another. And William Herschel Cobb, former state senator and school superintendent, was lying in a pool of his own blood in the yard of his own house, shot and killed by his own wife, Amanda. Amanda claimed she thought someone was breaking into the house. She said she didn't know she was shooting her own husband. When Ty Cobb received the telegram with the details of his father's death, he was devastated. He didn't always agree with his father, 
but he respected him, loved him, wanted him to be proud. And if he didn't make it as a ball player, Ty would have to bear the guilt for the rest of his life. The guilt of leaving town, of not being there when the shooting happened. If he had been there, then maybe none of it would have happened. A guy on Ty's team named George Leedy sat Ty down and got him to focus so that his desire to play ball wouldn't be in vain. George told him that natural talent was only part of making it in the big leagues. Ty needed more practice, more repetitions, more at-bats. So every day, George and Ty did drills. They practiced bunting to one side of the field with Ty's black bats and then the other. They practiced hit-and-run plays. They practiced slides. Ty slid and slid and slid some more and rubbed his legs raw and bled all over his uniform most days. And George helped Ty focus, be less of a spaz. You're trying to disrupt the other team, George told him one day after they finished their drills, and that's fine, but don't do it with your mouth. The way you play is more important. George told Ty to hone his game, refine his style of play, pick his spots, and it worked. Ty took extra bases when infielders were asleep at the switch, and he made adjustments. If a pitcher threw something with a late break, he'd move up in the batter's box and hammer the pitch before it curved. Or he'd hit the ball to the exact spot where no one would be able to catch it. He warmed up to hit by swinging all three of his beloved bats together. He was the first player to do so. Opposing pitchers watched Ty warm up and their knees buckled. Ty started to make waves in the semi-pro leagues and got the attention of scouts. It didn't hurt that his team had played some exhibition games against the Detroit Tigers. And it also didn't hurt that the Tigers sucked. They needed all the help they could get and took a chance on the raw kid from Georgia and his aggro style of play. Ty immediately set himself apart from his Tigers teammates. He wasn't much of a drinker, so he didn't go out carousing with the team after games. Instead, he went back to his hotel room to read books. And it wasn't just books he read. Ty Cobb read players. He noted pitchers' tendencies and habits way before advanced metrics even became a thing like how Hall of Fame pitcher Walter Johnson hated to hit batters. So Ty stood over the plate and dared Walter to throw inside. Ty also read the great pitcher Cy Young, who would hold the ball a little closer to his chin as he was going to pick off a runner. Ty waited for Cy to lower the ball, and then he'd steal bases at will. He'd figured out Cy Young's tell. Ty's new style of ball made the rest of his teammates look like fucking dinosaurs. They all felt threatened. And that's when the other players of the team started fucking with him. Maddie McIntyre especially. The Tigers catcher physically blocked Ty from taking batting practice. It was the 1906 season. Summer. Ty knew he was supposed to shut up and take it. Hazing was a ritual as old as the game itself. But Ty wouldn't shut up. Hell, he didn't know how. He told the manager what was happening. And if there's one thing worse than a punk kid who doesn't know when to shut up, it's a snitch. Ty came back to the clubhouse and found that his beloved black bats had been cut into pieces with saws. He dug through all the trash cans. He couldn't find the missing pieces. It had been one thing when his teammates tied his street clothes up in knots or stole his uniform or stuck pieces of wet newspaper on his head on the train headed to a game. But this was too much. This time was different. This time, Ty Cobb's teammates literally drove him away. In the middle of the 1906 season, Ty Cobb went missing, AWOL. No one knew where he had gone, and he wouldn't rejoin his team for 44 days. We'll be right back after this word, word, word.
When Ty Cobb unceremoniously returned to the Tigers lineup on September 2, 1906, the rumor mill was in overdrive. Rumor had it that Ty Cobb lost his mind when his mother went on trial for the murder of his father. It took a jury all of an hour to acquit her, but not before whispers circulated that she did have a lover with her at home that night, and he had been the one that killed Ty's dad. Regardless of how it happened, Ty still believed that somebody whom he loved dearly killed another person whom he loved dearly, and that's some heavy shit. Rumor also had it that Ty Cobb had been bullied right out of the Detroit Tigers dugout, and the Tigers weren't publicly copping to any hazing kerfuffle, even though they did dole out an indefinite suspension to ringleader Matty McIntyre. The team issued a statement explaining that the real reason Ty Cobb had missed a majority of the 1906 season was due to an emergency surgery which he would fully recover from. But there's no record that Ty Cobb had any surgeries that year. And so, rumor further had it that Ty Cobb had gone missing because he simply couldn't handle all the mental stress in his life, and he checked himself into an asylum. But one thing was for sure. Ty Cobb's cerebral and aggressive playing style remained unchanged upon his return. And that was no rumor. That was a fact. He ate all the mental stress for breakfast and churned out some amazing small ball. In the next year, 1907, Ty was both batting champion and stolen base leader for the American League. He held down the batting champion title for the next eight years until 1915 and then again from 1917 to 1919 and he gloated about being the stolen base leader for five of those years as well. 1911, though, that was the year for Ty Cobb. Batting average of 420, 127 RBIs, 248 hits, 147 runs, 83 stolen bases, and a 40-game hitting streak. To get to this level of greatness, Ty continued to be both cerebral and aggressive, but stoked by the ire of his teammates and opponents alike. Aggression soon became Ty's dominant mode of expression. The more everyone hated him, the more he hated them all back. And not just on the baseball diamond. In 1907, Ty angrily shoved a groundskeeper at Warren Park in Augusta, and then immediately after, got into a fistfight with a teammate. In 1908, he tussled with a construction worker in Detroit after the worker told Ty not to walk across a fresh coat of asphalt. And then in 1909, a violent incident at the Euclid Hotel in Cleveland put Ty Cobb in some of the hottest water of his life. It was early September. Ty was in town with the Tigers who had beaten the Cleveland Naps earlier that day, extending their winning streak to 14 games. The Tigers were holding down first place in the league. Ty Cobb was leading the league with a 362 batting average. The team spent the evening celebrating out on the town. Ty indulged in a few cocktails. He had been a teetotaler in the early part of his career, but these days were different. He was one of the first players to land endorsement deals, and he bought early stock in Coca-Cola that made him even richer. With extra money and growing fame, Ty started to loosen up. Ty started to drink. His teammates liked this version of Ty Cobb. Or maybe Ty's laid-back, lubricated demeanor simply caused his teammates to hate him less. When Ty arrived back at the Euclid Hotel that night around 2 in the morning, he found a note at the front desk inviting him up to a teammate's room for a late-night poker match, and Ty stumbled over to the elevator. He asked the bellhop standing inside to take him to the second floor, and the bellhop reminded Ty that his room was actually on the third floor and the bellhop would gladly take Ty to the third floor, to his own room, but not to the second floor because it was far too late for that sort of thing. 
Poker games at 2 a.m. would only serve to disturb the other guests. The other guests, Ty shouted. Now you wait a minute here. I am a guest at this hotel, and it is your job to do what I tell you to do. And the hotel's night watchman overheard the argument and stepped in to prevent further conflict. Let's go, Mr. Cobb, the watchman said, grabbing a hold of Ty's arm. Back to your room. Only Ty Cobb wasn't going back to his room. Ty Cobb was going to that poker match, and he was going to do so without some glorified babysitter holding his hand. Ty took a swing at the watchman's head. It was wide and outside, and the watchman swerved to avoid Ty's next punch and fell to the ground. Ty pulled a silver penknife from his pocket and jumped on top of the watchman. I'll kill you now, Ty yelled and sliced the watchman's shoulder. The two rolled around on the ground and the watchman soon found himself with the upper hand. He pinned Ty to the floor. He reached for Ty's face and sunk his pointer finger directly into Ty Cobb's eye socket. He felt the tip of his finger rub an eyeball squirming beneath the eyelid. He would show this drunk fuck. If Ty Cobb couldn't see, Ty Cobb couldn't play ball. Ty caught the watchman on the hand with another slice of his penknife. The watchman took his finger from Ty's eye and leapt to his feet. He pulled a gun from his side, cocked it, and pointed it square at Ty Cobb's head. When the night watchman for the Euclid pressed charges and Ty was indicted for assault with the intent to murder, Ty convinced his accuser to drop all charges for a meager $115 payoff. The people of Cleveland were shocked by Ty's trivial attempt at penance, and so the city went ahead and prosecuted him even though the watchman was out of the picture. Later in his life, when he was in his 70s and his health was failing, Ty Cobb told his biographer Al Stump about the Cleveland case and how the charge had been reduced to simple assault, and he was slapped with a paltry $100 fine. Al Stump published his book on Ty Cobb called My Life in Baseball, A True Record, shortly after Ty's death in 1961. In it, Stump claimed that the majority of men that Ty Cobb attacked were black, the groundskeeper at Warren Park, the construction worker in Detroit, and both the bellhop and the night watchman at the Euclid Hotel. The fact that Ty Cobb was not just violent, but was actually a violent racist, became a part of his legend. And that legend was made all the more infamous at a time when Major League Baseball was beginning to atone for its sins by integrating black players into pro ball following the dissolution of the Negro Leagues. Recent scholarship on Ty Cobb, most notably a biography by Charles Learson, debated whether or not some of Ty's victims were actually black. Regardless, the truth remains like this. Like most white Southerners of his day, Ty Cobb held racist attitudes, even if he was brought up in an unusually progressive household. It's well documented that he spewed racial epithets when provoked. He played pro ball in a league that actively kept black players out. And though it's true that Ty Cobb was a vocal proponent for the inclusion of black players in the 1950s when many white players still opposed integration in the dugout, at that point, Ty's career was long over. He'd been eclipsed decades before. In the 1920s, a new era of baseball was ushered in by a guy named George Herman Ruth, AKA Babe Ruth, AKA the Bambino. The fans loved him, this heavy guy with heavy appetites for food, for booze, for women. They saw themselves in him and every man who mashed taters like no one had before. It was just as hard to hate Babe Ruth as it was easy to hate Ty Cobb. When Ty Cobb retired, the numbers did the talking. He had more hits than any other player. He's been surpassed since only by Pete Rose. He stole a career 897 bases, and he hit a lifetime 366 average, which remains a record. 
When the Baseball Hall of Fame began in 1936, Ty Cobb was elected into the first class with more votes than any other player. Babe Ruth came in second. That's what we know for sure about Ty Cobb. The numbers, the stats, the facts. The other stuff about Ty Cobb, the stuff that exists somewhere between rumor and conjecture, the stuff printed in newspapers and stoked by legend, that stuff isn't so easily knowable. Because when it comes to one of the biggest rumors about Ty Cobb, many to this day have still been left to wonder, did Ty Cobb actually kill a man? On August 11, 1912, the Detroit News published a special evening edition of its daily paper with breaking news on the front page. Ty Cobb, Detroit's greatest player, was dying. It happened earlier that day. Ty and his wife, Charlie, were driving in their Chalmers, a high-end convertible car fresh off the factory line in Detroit, on their way to Michigan Central Station to catch a train to Syracuse for a game the following day. And they were running late. Ty was driving fast, and it being a sunny August day, they had the convertible top down while they drove. Ty heard footsteps scurrying, kicking up pebbles and dust. He could hear them over the Chalmers purring engine because there were three sets of footsteps and they were hustling. Ty's fancy car had attracted the attention of three young men, street toughs, teens maybe, and they were running alongside, keeping pace. It didn't seem like anything to worry about until the kids grabbed hold of the side of the car and hoisted themselves inside of it. Charlie screamed. The three guys flashed knives. Ty could smell the alcohol on them. They told Ty to pull over, and they demanded money, and their knife blades gleamed in the sun. Ty Cobb had long since turned the stress of his hazing days into some of the smartest and most unfuckwithable baseball of all time. He was no longer a coward in the face of opposition. He thrived on opposition, and he knew when he had to take matters into his own hands, like he had earlier that same year when he beat the shit out of Charles Lucker, Mr. Alpaca Coat, in the stands at Yankee Stadium. And so Ty Cobb took matters into his own hands once again. He pulled the car over to the side of the road, determined to kick the asses of the three guys crowding the back seat. In the struggle, Ty was stabbed in the shoulder. It was only a flesh wound, and despite the sensational front page of the Detroit News, Ty Cobb wasn't dying. He would be just fine. It was the three other guys who had to worry. Because according to additional rumors, Ty Cobb chased his attackers right out of the Chalmers' car and down the street. He caught up to one and beat on him for a while. And then he ran his smart ball run, ran like he was circling the bases on a hit deep to the outfield, and he caught up with one of the other would-be muggers. Ty knocked the attacker to the ground, pulled a Belgian Luger from his waistband and beat the piss out of the guy in some alley with the butt of the pistol. Other rumors followed that no, it wasn't a pistol at all. It was a Louisville Slugger bat, which Ty used to definitively smash the guy's face inside out. He then left him for dead, caught the train to Syracuse, and the very next day, hit a home run with the same bat. Like a lot of the rumors about Ty Cobb, there is some truth and some fiction to this one. And one of the primary reasons that the truth has remained so cloudy for so long is because of the original biography on Ty Cobb, ghostwritten by Al Stump in 1961, the year Ty Cobb died at the age of 74. In his book, Stump said of the incident with the would-be muggers in Detroit that after Ty pistol-whipped his attacker with his Luger, Ty, quote, left him there not breathing in his own rotten blood, unquote. 
Stump also claimed an unidentified dead body had been found in an alley near where the attack occurred. But Stump's account seems to be overwritten rubbish. Al Stump liked to embellish. He wanted his books to sell, so he never thought twice about tweaking Ty's stories with sales in mind. Stump's version of Ty Cobb, the murderer, was debunked in 1996 by Doe Roberts, writing in the National Pastime Journal. Part of Roberts' research included Ty Cobb's own narrative of the incident, given to the Syracuse Journal by Ty himself, not even 24 hours after he'd been attacked. Ty admits he was cut by one of the mugger's blades, but that they ran off in fear immediately after he'd been injured, and that's where the struggle ended. For Al Stump, the struggle continued. In 1961, Ty Cobb was a mere months away from death. Stump finished his manuscript and let Ty take a look. Ty went ballistic. There were so many inaccuracies, not just about the mugging in Detroit, but about the death of his father and about some of Ty's violent outbursts. Well, Stump said, go ahead and make your edits and I'll take them to the publisher. With a shaky hand, Ty annotated the manuscript, crossing out paragraphs, making notes in the margins. Stump told Ty he'd take the edited manuscript to his publisher, but this was also a lie. Ty Cobb, meanwhile, was in bad shape. Al Stump just had to wait a little while longer. A week, a month, it didn't matter. Once Ty was gone, Stump would have the final say. His version would become the definitive version, which means the truth, much like the game Ty Cobb had played and loved so well, would be over. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcasts because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. It's a show of guys.